Tonight we're going to see another murder in scripture. And although uh, the person who commits this murder, King David, doesn't actually do it with his own hands, it's still a murder nonetheless. And, and as we look at King David, I hope that some of what we see in King David can resonate with us, that, that we find ourselves in the position of King David more often than we would like. Not necessarily ordering the murder of someone, but just struggling with sin. And then even more, seeing the joy of the forgiveness that we have in Jesus. What we're going to see tonight in King David is a whole bunch of sins that sort of snowball on him, and I'm not sure why the thing is not clicking, but Steve, I'm going to ask you to do it for me if that's okay. This cumulative effect of sin after sin, you get the expression, right? Maybe you've even used it in your life, or, or maybe if you've ever been outside when the snow is really packy and rolled yourself a, a, a new snowman, or if you've watched a snowball roll down the hill, you, you get the expression. It actually picks up speed and, and snow on its way down and, and ultimately gets worse and worse. And, and that's what we see in King David tonight until God is the one who intervenes. So we're going to look at a couple of chapters from King David's life tonight, 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. We're going to read through quite a few verses tonight, but it's the best way to try to capture the story for you, and then we'll talk about it a little bit in between. So I'm going to start with the lead up to the actual crime tonight, uh, the true crime, the, the murder of Uriah, and we'll do that with the first few verses of 2 Samuel 11. In the spring... At the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Reba. But David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. I know this story is probably somewhat familiar to you, but there are a few things that I just like to take note of as I read this through for myself. And the first one is that David did something out of character for kings. You see, in, in David's day, the kings were the leaders of the army. They're the ones who led the troops into battle. But David decided for some reason he didn't need to go. And so he stayed home. He stayed back from the rest of the army. My guess is you've heard this expression, people use it a little bit differently, idle hands are the devil's workshop or idle hands are the devil's tools. And that's exactly what was happening with King David. Satan was hammering away at his heart, chipping away at King David. And maybe you can relate to that, I know I can. I know that, that when I don't keep myself busy, there are times that my brain and my heart is led astray to other things simply because I'm not staying busy. David's weakness appears to have been lust. And as he looked out off the roof of his palace, he saw someone and he sent to find out about her. And, and here's where it gets kind of interesting because without telling him you shouldn't do this, the servant, the man who found out about who this woman was, gave King David a warning saying you shouldn't do this. She's the wife, did you hear that, of Uriah the Hittite, the daughter of Eliam. Now, here's what's kind of interesting about those two names. David knew them very well. Later on in 2 Samuel and in 1 Chronicles 11, they're actually reported as part of this elite fighting force that David had. Both Eliam, Bathsheba's father, and Uriah 
her husband, were part of David's 30 fighting men, these mighty men of King David. And so that warning from his servant should have been enough for David to say, well, maybe this isn't what I'm supposed to do. But it happened. David sent for Bathsheba. You know the rest. David's married. Bathsheba's married. And what they did is adultery. And then the next thing happens. Bathsheba sends word a few days later, weeks later, whatever it was, I'm pregnant. And that's when the cover-up began. Here's where the snowball effect started. Do you kind of remember a little bit what happened? You remember that David sent to have Uriah brought home from battle and, and his hope was that Uriah would go home and spend some time at home and then the baby would look like it was Uriah's, but Uriah refused to go home. That was day one. He spent the night outside the palace. And then day two, David thought, well, I need to give him a little help, a little encouragement. And so he partied with Uriah and got him drunk, thinking, then he'll go home and I'll be off the hook because it'll look like it's Uriah's baby. But interestingly enough, it seems as if Uriah might have been more noble, at least at this point, drunk than David was sober. And Uriah refused to go home. And that leads to the crime, which we'll read next in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. I don't know if you caught it. I find this fascinating. David sent with Uriah, the orders that he be put in a bad spot in battle so that he would be killed. Uriah carried his death sentence back to the battlefield to Joab. Isn't it kind of amazing how brazen David is to cover up his sin? What if Uriah, which he probably would never have done, would have opened those orders and found out what David was up to? David was willing to take that chance. I don't know if you'll agree with this statement. I hope you do. But sin makes us stupid. I don't know if you listen to podcasts or watch true crime shows, but it never ceases to amaze me how every criminal thinks they're smarter than the police. They're smarter than everybody else and they'll be able to get away with whatever it is that they're doing. I think David thought that too. I, thought he, I think he thought he was always a step ahead of everybody else and he knew exactly how this was going to turn out. And he got what he wanted. Uriah died in battle. David had ordered his death and Uriah was killed. Do you remember what happened next? David takes Bathsheba home to be his wife. And we might think at first, well, didn't people understand something was going on there? But I don't think they did. To the people of Israel, David looked like a hero. Here's their king, so noble that when one of his own soldiers falls in battle, David is willing to take home the wife of that soldier and make her his own. David thought he had gotten away with it. Everything was all set, right? He had covered up his sin. Nobody was any the wiser. But this thing displeased the Lord, the Bible tells us. 
And it also ate away at King David. During this time where, where David held on to this sin, he describes it a little bit in Psalm 32 of what that was like. It's on the screen. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. That sin to King David felt like something that was pressing down on him. And that was God at work, reminding David to come clean, reminding him to confess his sin. I can't imagine what that was like for David to kind of be looking over his shoulder, wondering when somebody was going to find out, somebody was going to put two and two together and figure out what he had done. He had to be living a little bit uncomfortably just knowing all of the things that he had done. What I find amazing is this is the third murder that we've seen. And think about how differently God handled each one, but really in the end, the same. When Cain killed Abel, God asked him a question, where's your brother Abel? Giving Cain a chance to repent of his sins. When it was Moses, yes, Moses had to flee to get away from Pharaoh, but then God trained him in the desert and ultimately called him to be the leader through the burning bush. Now God is going to use some extreme measures to call David back to repentance. I find it kind of interesting that the name Uriah means God is light. I find it interesting because it's kind of ironic that it's God who's going to bring to light everything that's going on in David's heart and in his life. Do you see the lesson for us in King David? How hard it is to hold on to sin, to keep it inside, to not confess it but, but pretend that it didn't happen, try to sweep it under the rug? painful to our souls. And God wants us to confess, not to embarrass us, but to comfort us through the forgiveness that he offers. That's the aftermath of this story. And we'll read some verses of how God brought David to repentance here in 2 Samuel 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, there were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food and drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. We kind of see the aftermath. No, no, it's working. Sorry. We see the aftermath of this story. It, it, that story that Nathan tells, it, doesn't it kind of resonate with us too? Doesn't it get you a little angry too that why would a guy do that? Why would someone be so thoughtlessly cold to take the only lamb that belonged to his neighbor simply because he didn't want to get rid of one of his own? And the anger that, that you and I feel with that is, is certainly something we see in David, too. He actually pronounces a death sentence on the man. The man who did that deserves to die, he says. 
I can't imagine what it felt like for David. How shocked he must have been to hear Nathan's words. It's you, David. You're the one who did that. You're the man who did that very thing. David had just pronounced his own death sentence. It took extreme measures. Again, maybe that shows what happens when we hold on to sin. We don't even see it when someone presents us with the facts. But finally, David had to come clean. Maybe this is a good time to remind you of the Bible's description of King David. Both Samuel and Paul in the New Testament call King David this, a man after God's own heart. I want you to just let that sink in just a little bit tonight. We just read one of the worst events in David's life, and yet the Bible calls him a man after God's own heart. How? How could someone who did what David did be called a man after God's own heart? It's because in David's heart was faith. Faith that trusted a coming Savior. Faith that recognized that he had only one hope to escape sin. And that was the Savior that God had promised. I have sinned against the Lord, David finally said. And how about those beautiful words of Nathan? The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. Do you find comfort in King David? Someone who could be called a man after God's own heart? Who committed the sins that he did when you look at your own life? Maybe there are times you look at your life and you say, how could God ever love me? How could God ever love the, the, the things that I do, the things that I say, the, the thoughts that pass through my mind? And yet Nathan's message to David is God's message to you. I've taken away your sin. You're not going to die. The forgiveness that Jesus won on the cross is the payment for every sin, every crime, every misdeed, everything that goes against what God says in his word, it's paid for on the cross. That's the joy that we have just like King David, to know that what Jesus did in giving up his life for you and for me is what keeps us as members of God's family and heirs of eternal life. I'd love for you to take two things away from our message tonight. Number one, when we see the sins of David, we realize that sin will trip us up too. I think when we read through accounts like this, maybe at first glance it's easy to point fingers and say, what was David thinking? Until we take an honest look at our own lives and recognize the truth of what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. If you think you're standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. I know it's hard to believe sometimes, but there's not a sin that is committed in this world that you and I are incapable of. And then what's important is to know when those sins happen, to take them to the Lord, to confess those sins, because we will love what number two reminds us. There is no crime or sin that is too great for God to forgive. The Apostle John wrote it this way in his first, the first epistle. The blood of Jesus, God's Son, purifies us from, do you know the next word? All sin. All sin. That's what Jesus came to give you. Full and free forgiveness of every single sin. I don't know how much you guys pay attention to this news, but I do feel sorry for a certain college students who have been waiting and waiting to see if there's going to be loan forgiveness for their student loans. 
Do you feel if you're in that category a little bit like a yo-yo? Because one week, oh, there might be loan forgiveness. And then the next week, nope, there's a legal battle and you're not going to get that loan forgiveness. I don't know if you're in that position, but you just don't know what's going to happen. That's not the way it is with God. God's forgiveness for you isn't conditional. It's not iffy. Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. And so the same message that Nathan shared with David is God's message for you today and every day. The Lord has taken away your sin. Not only are you not going to die, but because of Jesus, you're going to live with him forever in heaven. Amen.